This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Consider this opening paragraph to an article in University World News from earlier this year. Many Asian countries have been setting ambitious goals to expand and improve their higher education sectors to respond to their growing aspirational middle class, and as a result, are on the way to catching up with and even overtaking the biggest higher education systems in the West. Indeed, the Institute of International Education's latest report on global education research, entitled Asia, the next higher education superpower, finds that the total number of universities and tertiary graduates in Asia outnumber those in North America and Europe. From the viewpoint of many Western policymakers and media elite, the rise of Asia in terms of education is understood both as an opportunity and source of anxiety. On the one hand, countries such as Australia view the rise of Asia as an opportunity to expand trade, increase student mobility, and grow research collaborations. On the other hand, as Asia becomes a dominant global education player, some Western governments and universities fear they will lose out to their Asian counterparts. How do we understand these mixed feelings? My guest today is Fazil Rizvi, professor of education at the University of Melbourne. He has a forthcoming book chapter in the Handbook of Global Education Policy, which will be published by Blackwell Press in 2016, that uses a post-colonial analysis to understand Western discourses on the rise of Asia. Within these discourses, Rizvi finds an us versus them dichotomy that he connects to colonialism. The rise of Asia from this perspective invokes conceptions of the Asian other, whose cultures must be understood, whose languages must be learned, and with whom closer relationships must be developed in order for us, the West, to realize our economic and strategic purposes. Fazal Rizvi, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. You have a new chapter coming out uh, in 2016, uh, all about Asia rising in higher education. Can you tell us some of the empirical facts uh, that talk about what you mean by Asia rising? Well, in first instance, I'm really talking about the very general terms, the economic rise of Asia, uh, basically their economic modernization, their participation in global economy, and indeed their rates of uh, economic growth. But the, in the second sense, I'm talking about rising Asia in terms of uh, its geopolitical positioning and how it is becoming increasingly important for international trade, international investment, and indeed international cultural and, and, uh, and economic production. So I'm really talking about uh, Asia rising in a number of different ways. And of course, there are a whole range of uh, 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 quantitative markers, indicators for this, uh, including the, the, the growth rate, including the rise in number of universities, including the production of research papers and research uh, uh, research projects and uh, indeed increase in uh, standards of living uh, right around Asia but in ways that are uneven. Some, some countries are progressing very rapidly and uh, are becoming quite rich and quite significant in global economy, others not so much. 
And what is causing this rise in various indicators in education in Asia? Well, um, there are a number of different ways you can answer that question. The first is uh, that economic growth itself, especially in relation to services industries and in terms of new modes of production of manufacturing good, requires new knowledges. And uh, the countries uh, of Asia, India, China, uh, Japan, Korea, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, are investing very heavily. Uh, so that's, if you like, uh, uh, an answer in relation to investment in higher education as a way of responding to the new skills needs um, and knowledge needs and the other one is basically the aspirations of uh, of parents and students themselves uh, you know there is a quite a determined effort um, to 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 participate in uh, in 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 educational system to the highest level um, going as far as uh, um, higher education so for example in Korea um, uh, the, the, the participation rates are almost 100%. Uh, in, Ch in Japan, it's very high, as you know, and uh, Hong Kong and Singapore, it's 90% or thereabouts. Uh, so as a result, uh, people's aspirations and people's expectations of their life uh, chances are becoming very closely tied to the extent to which they participate in uh, higher education systems. Uh, so it's not only being driven by the governments and corporations, but it's also being driven at the cultural level by individual parents and the communities. And, and how is this rise uh, in higher education or education generally in Asia being perceived uh, by the West? Well, the West is both interested and alarmed by the rise. Uh, in the chapter, I give a number of media headings uh, which suggest things like uh, the rise of Asia and decline of the West. Uh, Basically, uh, the altering power relations in geopolitics is uh, assumed to be linked to higher education as well. And as a result, uh, there is a degree of anxiety at one level, but a degree of opportunity as well. So, for example, a system like uh, Australian higher education is now become totally dependent on the rise of middle class in Asia, because that's where we get nearly 25 30% of our students uh, and it's an important source of revenue. So in, in other words, we want uh, rising Asia on the one hand. On the other hand, we also realize uh, that uh, we will not be the powerhouse uh, of research and knowledge creation in the ways that we have been in the past, in the, if you like, the colonial era, that the post-colonial era, actually, uh, the altered patterns of uh, relations would mean that uh, we'd have to relate to Asia not as simply giving us our consumers, but uh, in some other way, which needs to be thought about. So, to my mind, the relationship, the perception, the Western perception of the rise of Asia is systematically ambivalent. It is both uh, desired and derided at the same time. So, for example, uh, derided in the sense that uh, people say that, uh, that uh, well, the standards aren't as high and that, uh, that, uh, um, uh, um, that we are still better at providing quality education in a way that the Australian, uh, that in the way in which Asian universities are. Of course, that's not really the case in all subjects. In some subjects it is. But in STEM subjects, the rise of uh, leading universities in China 
and universities like Tokyo Institute of Technology or Hong Kong University is much more rapid than we are than than we have realized so far. I mean, people who are working in education don't realize how rapid the growth in STEM subjects has been in China, for example. And we will get into um, the Australian case in a little bit to dig more into this anxiety opportunity um, binary uh, that you that you describe. Um, but first, I want to just talk about the theoretical stance that you bring to this subject. And you're using um, parts of post-colonial theory. And, and before we jump into the, the main pieces of the theoretical work that you're using, how would you define post-colonial theory in a nutshell, in very simple language to the listeners out there? Uh, post-colonial theory, to me, I mean, there are a number of different ways to interpreting it. Some people see post-colonial simply as a chronological matter, after independence, if you like. My definition is not so narrow. I'm actually looking at a much more, if you like, um, uh, theoretical uh, way of looking at it, perspectival. So I see most of what is happening as in some ways being derived out of the history of colonialism. So I see history of colonialism as being always present in most things that we do um, uh, uh, and that uh, it is such a powerful history of 200 years that uh, uh, our reforms and our new ways of thinking uh, quite often reference that colonial past. So in other words, it's an attempt to make uh, history relevant to the understanding of the present that defines for me the idea of post-coloniality, that is uh, post-coloniality in the sense that even though the countries have nominally become independent, the history continues to shape the ways in which uh, uh, our, 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 our everyday life, our political relations, our social formations are still formed by that. What is an example of, of how colonialism is, is still present uh, today in, in the current moment? Well, let's look at the school system. Uh, the school system is largely a product uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of colonial history. I mean, the schools in India before the arrival of uh, uh, British uh, were very differently organized. Then they were organized in much the way that's become familiar to us. Uh, classrooms, you know, timetable, the importance of time, uh, periods and things like that, you know. I mean, those are colonial colonial constructs uh, uh, and uh, they persist and indeed uh, the, any definition of what good schooling is does not uh, ignore those constructs and define whatever good is in terms of those colonial definitions. Uh, so my view is that uh, we need to actually understand that history as a way of understanding contemporary formation of, uh, of, of schooling. Um, and of course in curriculum too, the ways in which our subjects are organized, the ways in which our knowledge is constructed, the ways in which uh, we, uh, we, we um, organize the governance of schooling and, and also of higher education uh, is really a colonial, um, uh, colon colonial construct, uh, you know, that has continued to be part of it. Now, of course, we can't um, sort of say that we must either go back or construct a completely new way. But I think the recognition that these things have been defined and constructed 
through the history of colonialism is an important one so that we can understand uh, how it is that we are both indebt indebted to colonial powers but also are resisting it at the same time uh, and that gives us a certain level of power to um, to 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 construct the things uh, both uh, in terms of uh, continuities and uh, perhaps uh, in some cases discontinuities. So how is post-colonial theory helpful uh, in your understanding the, the anxiety that you find within Western discourses on Asia rising? Well, uh, the colonial discourse was predicated on asymmetry of power. Okay, the colonial was there was the colonizers and they were colonized, and it was uh, assumed that colonizers had all the knowledge and all the all the money and all the ways of guiding through some linear modern path the countries of the of the of the of the, of the non-West, if you like, uh, non-colonial, the colonized, uh, and the whole development ideology was based on that, you know, and that uh, we are helping these countries uh, develop towards certain path of progress. But the progress itself was considered linear and uh, teleological, in other words, uh, directed towards endpoint, and that endpoint was defined by the colonizers themselves. Of course, with the rising power of uh, of Asia, um, that may not always be the case, and things will change. You know, as uh, people in uh, in uh, in previously colonized countries will assert their authority and their power to to develop their own systems, uh, and uh, that would to that that extent weaken the 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 the. the the, the, the assumed authority of the West. And I think it's the loss of authority and loss of power, legitimate authority, that uh, many countries and many people are quite often concerned about and, uh, and are anxious about. So anxiety enters as a way of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of being concerned about uh, a rearticulation of power relations. And you use Homi Baba's notion of ambivalence to understand this anxiety and opportunity, this the the between the the colonized and the colonizer. Um, can you explain this concept of ambivalence in in simple language first? Well, ambivalence is uh, simply that uh, the colonized doesn't buy what the colon colonizer is offering holus bolus. Uh, there is always refraction, there is always rearticulation, there is always revision, there is al al always mimicry, and there is always uh, always opposition, resistance, if you like. Uh, um, and uh, similarly, the colonizer doesn't always want to unambiguously dominate in its own interest. Sometimes the colonizer is quite interested in helping the colonized as well, however you define helping. So the relationship uh, uh, is not totally hegemonic, but all, always partial. So the idea of, uh, of ambivalence is capturing that, uh, uh, that, uh, that partiality, if you like, uh, of power relations, uh, rather than assuming uh, a colonizer to be all-powerful and the colonized to be all-powerless. It's never like that. There's a degree of complicity by, by, by the colonized and there is a degree of, uh, of altruism by, by the colonizer. So in that sense, uh, the relationship is an, amb is, is an ambivalent one. 
So how do you see an ambivalent relationship um, in the case of Asian higher education or the rise of Asian higher education? Well, the West sees it in, as, in one way, really beneficial to its interest. Uh, as more and more people in Asia are, are educated, they are participating in a global trade, which often is assumed to benefit uh, the, the, the West. So, for example, reports after reports that come out are always highlighting how the rising Asia rising China in particular, and to a lesser extent India, will be of great benefit in trade terms to countries like Australia or to United States, uh, um, that uh, it will bring in new consumers into the system, and as a result, uh, we will economically benefit from it. You know, um, so uh, the, 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 that's on one side. On, on the other hand, uh, there is an assumption that our, pop, our power and, uh, uh, and our, the power relations and our authority is going to be somehow weakened. So those two things are happening at the same time. You know, there is an admiration of, uh, of China. On the other hand, there is a derision of China. So the conceptions of yellow peril, for example, the highly colonial and racist uh, representations of Asia haven't entirely disappeared, but have been uh, tempered by a certain admiration of the growth rates uh, that are 10% per year going over two decades, uh, you know, and the hard work and the contribution that the China is making to to to, uh, to global economy is admired, but uh, at the same time there is a kind of like a derision which suggests that uh, they are that they are making huge progress, but they are not as good really, and they threaten our interest as well. So perhaps a way to really dig into these concepts is through a, a case study, which you do offer in in the case of Australia. So can you walk me through this? What are some of the, um, the major policies that Australia has implemented uh, towards Asia in, higher, in the higher education sector? Um, and where do you see this notion of ambivalence as you describe it? Sure. Well, to, start, to begin with, I think we have the issue of, uh, of Australia and Australian higher education in particular uh, uh, becoming sustainable economically as a result of the rise of Asia. Uh, as uh, Asian countries become much more economically well-off, they create a middle class with purchasing power of being able to buy education in, in Australian universities and to lesser extent in Australian uh, schools. So for example, the University of Melbourne where I work, 20% of our revenue comes from international students. So we've become incredibly dependent on tuition coming from that source. Uh, so as a result, we have to actually develop uh, a situation where we continue to believe that we have something distinctive to and something better to offer them as a consumer society, you know, something to be consumed. On the other hand, we want to actually sort of saying we are helping to develop um, Asian countries uh, uh, through the kind of education that our students. So the ambivalent relation comes about as a result of uh, us uh, both benefiting economically from international students and also being somewhat concerned that uh, we will 
perhaps in the future, no longer we be needed. So as a uh, um, university like Tsinghua and, uh, and Beijing Normal and NUS, National University of Singapore, University of Hong Kong, uh, rise in the rankings, there is a considerable anxiety uh, in leading universities in Australia and with Australian governments that our uh, strategic economic advantage may be disappearing and that the best students will not necessarily come into our graduate programs, for example. They would go to Tsinghua or to the University of Hong Kong or, or to NUS. And that, that is a source of uh, considerable anxiety because the assumption is that some of these people who might make really very good immigrants, some of the leaders in our research fields and in our economic fields, commercial fields, will perhaps go back to their own country of origin and will not become the productive Australians and migrants uh, that they must, might, might have once have been. So there is an anxiety um, that lies at the heart of Australian politics. So what, what's the Australian government doing about it? Well, to start off with, it's continuing to rely on, on revenue from international student fees, but it's also trying to develop a whole range of relationships with leading Asian universities so that uh, they collaborate in research and teaching. Uh, they're setting up, uh, they're helping to set up campuses in Asia so that uh, our market share uh, remains even though the number of students may decline in the future. Uh, so there are a whole range of economic uh, strategies that are being deployed to make sure that our market share does not only uh, remain but perhaps even grows, uh, even if it requires transnational collection, uh, transnational relations uh, <coughs> whereby education is not offered onshore but offshore uh, or through various collaborative arrangements such as twinning arrangements or, or, or joint programs and those kind of things. Uh, so our research policy is becoming quite heavily dependent on collaboration with uh, with uh, with uh, with uh, with leading Australian uh, Asian Asian universities, realizing of course that many of these universities are now producing more research than our best universities are. So Tsinghua, for example, is already ahead in fields like nanotechnology, um, agricultural science, uh, biotechnology, mathematics, computer sciences, and so on, ahead of uh, even the best of Australian universities. So uh, the strategy that is being adopted is uh, if, if they are going to inevitably go ahead of us, then somehow we need to get into the action um, into the into the kind of uh, research that they're doing as partners. So it so in a sense it's it's a means to your ends or our ends as as our being the Western. Absolutely, absolutely. So the relationship that we are developing with these universities is becoming really quite an instrumental one rather than one of friendship and one of uh, um, collaboration. In, uh, on equal terms, it is becoming how is it that we can utilize the resources uh, that they exist, either in the form of uh, incoming international students or in terms of giving our researchers uh, an opportunities to work with, uh, the work in and work with the researchers uh, in Tsinghua and the uh, University of Hong Kong and so on and NUS. You know? So if we can't actually get them here, and uh, they benefit us from bringing them here. The thing is, how do we get there?
to make sure that we remain part, we, we continue to see part of the action rather than nothing at all. And on the flip side, many universities in Asia are actively seeking the partnerships with Western universities, with Australia. And so what, what would be some of the reasons that um, a, a university like the University of Tokyo, where I am, would want to partner with ANU, which it does? Well, I mean, there are a whole range of reasons. You know, to start off with, um, the, the education and its benefits are largely being envisaged in transnational space rather than national space. So their interest is in trying to rely upon the best possible resources that they can draw from ANU and also um, that uh, they can participate in the production of knowledge uh, utilizing the benefits of English language and English publications because, uh, uh, you know, I mean, the, the colonial relations don't only happen one way. The colonial relations continue to happen the other way as well. And in many ways, um, at Tokyo University, uh, there is still assumption that, uh, you know, leading universities in the West uh, are somehow better. And in any case, if they have access to English, and most of the ranking is done in the language of English, then we need to participate in that. So there are a whole range of reasons why Asian universities are interested in collaboration. But those reasons are not necessarily the same reasons as Australian universities have for collaboration with Japanese universities. Right. And, and one of the um, main policies that the Australian government was promoting that connected many universities to Asia was this Asian literacy, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, was part of the Rudd Report back in the 90s. Well, the Rudd report was a report about language. So basically, the idea was that Australians will learn an Asian language. So it wasn't Asia literacy per se, learning about Asia. Uh, more recent programs have been about Asia literacy, emerging from whole range of uh, uh, other, uh, other, 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 other ways in which uh, uh, this is being um, envisaged. So. Um, uh, language is just one component of the broader idea of Asia literacy. That is learning about Asia and our relationships with Asia and our locatedness and the inevitability of our economic future in Asia. That's actually what Asia literacy is trying to do. Right. And then there's other policies like student mobility and research collaboration that, that connects universities in Australia with those in Asia. Well, these policies are familiar to Japanese and uh, some, uh, some other Asian universities. Uh, certainly, uh, the Japanese government has invested heavily in trying to send Japanese students to leading universities elsewhere to develop an international consciousness, if you like, or international understanding of the globalizing economy and culture. Um, and, the, and I think Australians have come to this a little late, like uh, the things that uh, Japanese universities have been doing for 20 years, um, Australian universities are now doing uh, uh, as a way of encouraging Australian students to go and spend as much as one year in, in Asian universities uh, with the assumption that they have things to offer that are as good as, if not better, than uh, um, our own local universities can. And what are some of the problems that you find with um, this instrumentalist logic, the, the logic that says it's, it's all about a means to our ends, um, embedded in many of the Australian higher education policies um, towards Asia? 
Well, I don't see anything wrong with instrumentalism per se. Okay, um, instrumentalism is not something that is uniformly bad, but if it is reduced only to instrumentalism, then you've got problems because uh, instrumentalism, as we know, is time-specific and sooner or later <laughs> the relationship would not be deeper and smarter in ways that it needs to be if it's only instrumental. Um, I mean, I'm not against uh, uh, people doing things because it has benefits down the track or they have economic benefits or they have other benefits of political strategic kind. I'm not against that at all. Uh, what I am saying is uh, it is very dangerous to uh, drive most aspects of your, of your policy through this in instrumentalism. Uh, instrumentalism has to be considerably um, thought about in a broader set of relationships uh, that are deeper and smarter. And looking into the future, now that um, Malcolm Turnbull has become the prime minister in Australia, what, what do you envision future policies looking like in Australia? Will, th will, will there be a change? Um, not not in the short term. I mean, Malcolm uh, Turnbull is perhaps much more aware of the contradictions and the complexities than our previous Prime Minister was, who really saw the world in black hats and white hats terms, you know, um, and he would understand the complexities associated with ambivalence or mimicry or, or, or smart engagement, for example, uh, than, uh, than um, um, Abbott was. But, uh, I mean, these things are deeply, deeply embedded in Australian culture and Australian consciousness, you know, and it'll take a long, long time for things to change. And I think uh, our, 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 our challenge really is to understand how we can drive our relationship in smarter directions rather than leaving it uh, to be defined by either colonial or more recent instrumentalist economic terms, you know, that we need to broaden the relationship to be multidimensional and uh, much more, uh, much more uh, nuanced. Well, Fazal Rizvi, thanks for joining Fresh Ed. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Fazal Rizvi is a professor in education at the University of Melbourne. He has written extensively on globalization and education policy, issues of identity, difference and culture in transnational contexts, Indian higher education, and Australian-Asian relations. Fresh Ed is going on holidays for the next two weeks. We'll return with new shows on January 11th. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. If you want to highlight your research on Fresh Ed or give us feedback on the show, please send an email to gesig.ces at gmail.com. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Like what you heard on the show today? Please be sure to review and subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. Have a wonderful break and a happy new year. I'm Will Brim. See you next time.